Welcome back to Season 2 of the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. We're now in the midst of the Cold War, and this episode will cover probably the closest we as a human species ever came to nuclear Armageddon. The thing about the Cuban Missile Crisis is that the more you learn about it, the more you realize how disgustingly close we came as a civilization to nuclear annihilation. Historians and poor podcast hosts today have the benefit of the secret tapes which reveal some of the tense decision-making of President Kennedy and his advisors, as well as the secret archives of the Soviet Union, which we opened up after the end of the Cold War. We know that General Maxwell Taylor, Kennedy's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the highest-ranking officer in the United States military, advised Kennedy to launch a massive airstrike against Cuba with no advance warning in order to disable the Soviet nuclear weapons in Cuba before they became operational and a threat to the U.S. homeland. We also now know that some of these missiles were, in fact, already operational and ready to launch on short notice. The Air Force Chief of Staff, General Curtis LeMay, told Kennedy, quote, We don't have any choice other than direct military action. Of course, with 2020 hindsight, we did. Former Secretary of State Dean Acheson, who was advising Kennedy, told him that he supported the military's decision to launch an assault. Had a different choice been made then by President Kennedy, he would likely not be listening to this podcast here today there probably would not be any podcasts at all. There might not be many humans left at all. That October and November of 1962, as the Cuban Missile Crisis unfolded, were probably the most dangerous days in recorded human history. And this is the story. In the immediate years after the Korean War ended in an armistice in 1953, President Eisenhower continued the grand American tradition of dramatic military budget cuts. His new theory of national defense rested on the brinksmanship paired off with a cost-effective strategy of massive retaliation if the Soviet Union got too out of line. Truman's Cold War strategy of containment and measured response to communist aggressions went out the window. The new policy, advocated for by Secretary of State John Dulles, was to launch a massive, empire-destroying retaliatory nuclear strike against the USSR for any communist offensive war, anywhere in the world, regardless of whether the Soviets were directly involved or not therefore making the Soviet Union keep a tight rein on all of the smaller communist powers around the world. If there was a little ambiguity about what line would trigger a nuclear reign, so much the better. A little fear never hurt anyone, or so the theory went. Army and Navy budgets got slashed to pay for the Air Force's nuclear delivery programs, and the Navy was an easy target because the Soviet Navy was focused on coastal defense at the time, but was saved from total devastation by taking part in the newly prominent nuclear mission. Billions and billions of dollars were poured into research and development of nuclear propulsion and ballistic missiles under the purview of Admiral Hyman Rickover. Rickover was a character, and I may do a whole episode on him at some point, but for now it's enough to know that he single-handedly ruled over the Navy's nuclear program for two decades, and having gone through the Navy nuclear program, I can say that it still has what is probably an unhealthy obsession with his legacy, and various eccentricities, but that's a story for another episode. Under Rickover's leadership, the Navy launched its first nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Nautilus. Nuclear power allows submarines to stay submerged indefinitely, stay out to sea longer, go faster, and crucially, be large enough to carry ballistic missiles. For that, the Polaris missile system was developed, capable of an initial range of 1,200 miles. The Navy was now officially the most important part of the nuclear triad. The nuclear triad is the three methods of delivering nuclear weapons onto an enemy. By bomber, literally dropping a nuclear bomb on the enemy, World War II style. By intercontinental ballistic missile, launched from a cornfield in, say, 
North Dakota or Central Kazakhstan, or by submarine. The submarine component is by far the most important, because submarines are easily hidden and mobile under the oceans of the world. It's much easier to locate fixed missile silos, and you can much more easily shoot down all the enemy bombers before they reach your major cities. As long as an enemy, and in this case the USSR, could not be 100% certain that they could preemptively find and destroy every single one of our nuclear submarines before launching a first strike against us, Moscow knew that a nuclear submarine could launch a retaliatory nuclear strike. Given the devastating destruction of only one nuclear missile, every leader had to have this calculation of what on God's green earth could possibly be worth the certainty of losing tens or hundreds of millions of people in all of my biggest cities over. And thus, the balance of power in the Cold War, and ever since, has hinged on the concept of mutually assured destruction. You kill me, I kill you. So let's agree not to kill each other. Deal? But before the theories of mutually assured destruction were fully fleshed out, and in those early Cold War days when the United States had a pretty decisive nuclear edge, there was a strain of thought in Washington that we, the United States, could win a nuclear exchange if it came down to it. The norm against nuclear weapons use was not as strong just a decade past their first and only use in wartime. And during the first two decades of the Cold War, these factors combined to make the world a dangerous place. The closest Eisenhower ever came to nuclear weapons use was during the Taiwan crisis, where the communist Chinese mainland began shelling nationalist-controlled Taiwanese outer islands. Meanwhile, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek seemed prepared to launch an invasion of their own. The crisis spiraled, and the Navy was called on to mass evacuate Taiwanese citizens from outer Taiwanese islands. Eisenhower, in a perfect example of nuclear brinksmanship, threatened the Chinese with nuclear weapons should they invade Taiwan. There would be no repeat of the bloody Korean War under his watch. The Chinese backed off, but not before Soviet Premier Khrushchev threatened a retaliatory nuclear strike should we Americans nuke China. The Chinese decided against escalation, but notch up another lucky win for humanity. When the young and inexperienced President Kennedy took over from the grizzled war hero and World War II Supreme Allied Commander President Eisenhower, Soviet Premier Khrushchev doubted Kennedy's resolve in the face of a potential nuclear war. Kennedy issued in a more flexible military response and backed away from Eisenhower's nuclear brinksmanship. All of this led to the greatest crisis of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis. The opportunity to reinforce the ideologically aligned island of Cuba just 90 miles off the U.S. coast, had been tempting the Soviet Union ever since Fidel Castro's communist guerrillas overthrew the Batista regime in 1959. Almost immediately, the Soviet Union began providing economic aid, and following several unsuccessful U.S. attempts to remove Castro, including the infamously doomed Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, the USSR significantly stepped up the military aid to the communist island. From January through July of 1962, an average of 14 Soviet cargo ships per month arrived in Cuban ports, primarily carrying military hardware. In August, the number of ships more than doubled. By September, it was 46. And so it was that in September of 1962, amid growing tensions with the Cuban and Soviet governments, that a Navy reconnaissance flight photographed the Soviet freighter Kazimov en route to Cuban waters with 10 Aleutian IL-28 jet bombers packed on its deck each capable of delivering a nuclear payload. The Soviets eventually deployed at least 42 of the IL-28 Beagles to Cuba, which resulted in badly needed F-4 fighters being diverted from carrier task forces to Key West, Florida for air defense against a Soviet strike. During the years leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
Soviet Premier Khrushchev had been growing more and more concerned about the nuclear imbalance. NATO had missiles on alert just off the Soviet border, while the Soviet nuclear arsenal was thousands of miles away from the American mainland. Cuba offered a chance to change that analysis. While the U.S. was distracted by the Berlin crisis and our response in the form of the Berlin airlift, Khrushchev launched Operation Andyar, the secret Soviet military operation to transport nuclear-capable missiles, bombers, and troops to Cuba to counteract the American missile advantage by offering a reciprocal threat to the American homeland and demonstrate to the Americans their inability to halt the advance of Soviet power. After CIA high-powered reconnaissance missions over western Cuba and Lockheed Martin U-2Fs detected Soviet SS-4 and SS-5 ballistic missile launchers under construction, which later analysis believed to be just weeks away from completion, the Cuban Missile Crisis was kicked off in the face of what President John Kennedy and his advisors considered an unacceptable threat to the U.S. homeland. More Soviet tankers were inbound with more parts and troops, while Soviet submarines patrolled the Caribbean with permission to fire their nuclear-armed torpedoes at our Navy without first consulting the Kremlin. Faced with inbound tankers and military calls for an all-out assault, President Kennedy, a World War II naval officer himself, called on the Navy to impose a blockade around the Caribbean, which he conveniently called a quarantine because, after all, a blockade is an internationally recognized act of war. But if you call it a quarantine, it's all good. Naval forces under U.S. Atlantic Command headed up by Admiral Robert Dennison, steamed out to sea, intercepting both merchant shipping en route to Cuba and Soviet submarines operating in the area. Over the course of the crisis, an aircraft carrier, two cruisers, 22 destroyers, and two frigates manned quarantine lines designated Chestnut and Walnut. The unparalleled logistical support capabilities of the Navy allowed Kennedy the option of keeping such a huge fleet on station, essentially indefinitely, through underway replenishment by oilers and store ships. Radar picket ships, supported by Navy fighters and airborne early warning planes, assisted the Air Force's Air Defense Command in preparing to defend American airspace from Soviet and Cuban forces. Now, Khrushchev wasn't an idiot, and he recognized the danger of the situation, but was unable to back down in the face of political pressure at home, and he was cognizant of how a unilateral pullback would play out abroad as the Soviets contested for primacy with the U.S. around the world. He called the quarantine an illegal blockade and ordered the Soviet transport ships to keep on steaming. At the same time, the Navy and Marine Corps began assembling Task Force 128, the largest amphibious force the Atlantic fleet had seen in a generation. 86 ships, including 58 amphibious ships and over 40,000 personnel, were assembled in preparation for a mass assault against Soviet positions in Cuba. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, we now know that the Soviet conventional military forces deployed to Cuba were two to four times larger than our intelligence realized at the time and had tactical nuclear weapons ready to launch with pre-authorization designated down to the Soviet four-star commander of forces in Cuba against any potential American invasion force. Think about that sort of landing. You thought World War II was bad, and it was. Now imagine you're a Marine storming a beach not against machine guns, mortar fire, and pillbox Japanese, but against nuclear weapons, which could vaporize an entire landing beach all in one shot, so to speak. I personally suspect that President Kennedy would have ordered a strike against all known Soviet nuclear launch sites in Cuba had the Soviets vaporized our Marines in an amphibious landing. Maybe we would have gotten all the missile sites, and maybe we would not have. And I don't think anybody really has any idea what Khrushchev's next move would have been but it's all too easy to foresee a chain of events 
where nuclear tit-for-tat leads down a pretty dark road. There were several close calls during the Cuban Missile Crisis. One of the closest was with Soviet Foxtrot-class submarine, B-29. As part of the Cuban quarantine, U.S. destroyers began dropping signaling depth charges on B-29. To B-29, those signaling depth charges sounded suspiciously like, well, real depth charges. Had war broken out? Hundreds of feet below the surface, there was little radio contact with the outside world. Moscow had been silent for days. B-29's captain wondered if Moscow still existed. Perhaps Moscow was just a smoking pile of radioactive slag after the perfidious American nuclear strike. B-29's captain decided to launch a nuclear torpedo. Fortunately for the sake of humanity, all three senior officers aboard B-29 had to agree unanimously to authorize a nuclear launch. Both the captain and the Soviet political officer agreed that a nuclear torpedo should be launched at the American destroyers. Only the executive officer, Vasily Arkhipov, disagreed. Now, Vasily Arkhipov was not just the submarine's XO. He was also a hero of the Soviet Navy. He was the officer who, as a junior officer last year, led the response to the K-19 submarine core leak disaster. If you've never seen K-19 Widowmaker, I highly recommend it. It's a great movie. And that was Vasily. Fast forward a year, he's the XO of B-29. If he had not been a hero of the Soviet Navy, would things have ended differently? Maybe. But Vasily saved at least one destroyer right there, and quite possibly the world. In the words of Thomas Blanton, the head of the National Security Archive, the lesson from this is that a guy named Vasily Arkhipov saved the world. So, I trust him. After 13 days of standoff, the Soviet ships, outmatched by the U.S. Navy, turned around and the world did not end. In return for removing missiles from Cuba, Kennedy publicly promised not to invade the communist island and privately agreed to remove American missiles from Turkey. With world powers balanced and an increasingly large number of nuclear weapons on both sides, the military tide which had turned from Truman gradualism to Eisenhower's brinksmanship again turned to Kennedy's gradualism, which demanded a military capable of fighting in the field and on the seas, not one solely reliant on nuclear threats. To this day, there are a few key questions historians will probably never know the answers to about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and many of them resolve around why it really happened at all. Khrushchev knew he was playing a dangerous game, and ultimately he backed down. But how much of the decision to send nuclear-armed, medium-range missiles to Cuba was really to deter an American attack on Cuba, as the Soviets claimed at the time? Or was the real desire to shore up the strategic imbalance between the Soviet Union and the United States in 1962. And if that was the main factor, was it primarily seen as a defensive imperative or an offensive move to prepare the Soviet hand for a new round of confrontation over Berlin and Eastern Europe? Because if you remember back to the beginning of the episode, the Berlin crisis and the Berlin airlift were occurring at the same time. The Soviets really wanted us out of Berlin and to solidify their hold over Eastern Europe and possibly do a little expansion of the Iron Curtain which would have been a whole heck of a lot easier if America were feeling a little more constrained or distracted by nuclear weapons just off the coast of Florida. But even as the threat in Cuba receded, around the world in Vietnam, things were just getting started. Communist North Vietnam was beginning to launch attacks against the, well, not exactly democratic, but more anti-communist South Vietnam. The prevailing mood in the Kennedy administration was that if communism was not stopped in Vietnam, it would spread to Thailand, to Indonesia, and beyond. And this was unacceptable. 
And so Kennedy began ramping up U.S. troop presence in South Vietnam. By 1963, there were over 16,000 soldiers and airmen stationed in the country. By then, though, Kennedy was beginning to doubt the wisdom of the war there. Was Vietnam really necessary? Following the election of 64, he began musing about withdrawal. Maybe he would have done it, but before he could put those muses into action, Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated Kennedy in Houston. And, well, that was the sad end of the true beginning of the Vietnam era, which you'll have to wait until the next episode to hear about. You'll get to hear about Navy pilots, Navy SEALs, shore bombardment, the Brownwater Navy, and more. And as always, please write to me at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com and find me on Twitter or Instagram at usnavypodcast. And please rate, subscribe, tell your friends, all that good stuff. And until next week, fair winds and following seas. Russian ships were sailing all out across the sea. We all feared by daybreak, it'd be World War Number Three.